You don't go to the games to be a wuss. You don't go to the games to be a wimp. You go to the games because you've got to get through those, fi those finish flags no matter what. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you today? I am getting ready for snow. Oh yeah, you're getting dumped today. I'm, yes, today and tomorrow I am going to be buried like an avalanche. And then you'll pull out your cross-country skis? No. We are supposed to get a little bit of snow. I keep hoping. I'm going to pull out my bobsled. And go down the driveway. <laughs> oh, that would be most excellent. I wish I could. <laughs> that would be fun to go grocery shopping. And so if you had a grocery store at the bottom of a hill and you were at the top and you could just get in your bobsled, because it's, you could put all the food behind you. But then you got to put the bobsled and the groceries back up. Yeah, I guess. But that'd be a good workout. Maybe you oh, can sure. build like, you know how uh, there's those multi-story grocery stores and big box stores like Target and Ikea have the escalators for your shopping cart. Just yes. build an escalator for your bobsled. I don't see a problem. <laughs> yeah. Little chair left on the hill. <laughs> We're getting a little punchy at the end of the year. <laughs> Man, well, it's been a rough year. We're allowed to be a little punchy. Exactly, exactly. Um, one quick correction of the record from last week. We had mentioned that the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant had been tracking uh, the dropped wrestling programs from colleges. He's actually been tracking all dropped sports at colleges. You can find the full list at almanac.matttalkonline.com slash COVID-19-era-dropped-sports. There's quite a list. It's really, it's really sad. Well, you just brought me down. All right. Well, let's bring you up. I know. I'm so excited about our, our friends today. Exactly. So every year we like to sprinkle, sprinkle in a few episodes about the history of the Olympics. And next year we're going to focus those episodes on just one games. So we asked you on social media which games we should cover and to announce the winner and talk about these games. Ruth Fitzpatrick and Chris O'Reilly from Olympopod have joined us. Take a listen. We are here with Ruth and Chris from Olympopod, a uh, podcast devoted to the history of the Olympics, and they are here to tell us our pick for our historical Olympics for next year. Ruth, Chris, what Olympics will we cover next year? It's, it's, it's not, it's not going to be synchronized, but it's Atlanta! <laughs> Okay, you, you got like a zero in synchronized swimming for that announcement. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but you see how little splash we made? Like, I feel like that needs to take into consideration when the points come in. So, you know, and also we have another five or six rounds. We're going to bring it back. We start slow, but our diving will improve. Yes, we are talking Atlanta 96 next year. All of our historical episodes will have some kind of Atlanta focus not the bombing, because we already covered that in book club. So go read The Suspect. Go listen to Book Club Claire. 
but we are going to find some fun shows to talk about the games. But we wanted to have Ruth and Chris on to tell us a little bit about what Atlanta was like, some of the big names, some of the big things, uh, some of the controversies. What do you got for us? No, I think, I mean, for me, I think the standout thing here, and I think both of you can tell us a lot more about this, is that it seems like it was the first real Olympics where commercialization took over the Olympics. I mean, it wasn't anything new in the sporting landscape, even in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But in Atlanta 96, it completely took over. In fact, the whole thing was privately funded. It wasn't backed by any government initiatives or any state funds. It was all Coca-Cola and whatnot. And it just seemed like from what I read and what I heard, the entire Olympic atmosphere was just covered in branding. That's true. And that was something not really seen since 1924 when they had the advertising in the stadium for one Olympics only and quickly put the kibosh on that. But yeah, Atlanta was really over-commercialized, I guess. I, I didn't go, but I remember the talk of having almost like a flea market outside, just a festival with lots of booze and lots of people selling all kinds of stuff that I think the powers that be felt took away from the integrity of the games. But it wouldn't have happened otherwise, right? I mean, it's, it seems like there was no real uh, public backing for it. Uh, it seems was a bit difficult to understand how it happened in the first place. And seeing as it was the centennial games as well, that it uh, was taken out of the grasp of Athens, which seemed like the, the natural place for it to be. It seemed like it was a, relative success in financial terms in the end, but I guess nothing was guaranteed at the time. And this would have been the first time that there was a summer games without a winter games in the same year. Mm. That was right after the split. They were it for the year. It is so crazy because like, I don't remember an Olympics without it being split. So it was actually, when I discovered that actually in my lifetime that they came at the same time was a bit of a, what? <laughs> because I, ca I, I cannot imagine, you know, having them in the same year. Yeah, Atlanta was also, uh, not in terms of the medals, but in terms of the feel. Like I remember them calling it the Bubba Games because it, it felt very American. So I'm wondering what, I mean, I know you were little at the time, but was this like, this is what America is like. I think a great thing to refer to, and I want Ruth's opinion on this, is the mascot, Izzy. Because that, that I think, is a perfect way to look at what the Atlanta games were for, not just for the young audience like us at the time, but for the world looking at the mascot, which is usually a representation of the nation that is hosting it. Yeah, I'm delighted to say that that had been blanked out of my mind before I uh, researched Izzy. Um, it was the first computer animated mascot, which 94, hoo hoo. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, it's an interesting choice. But I have to say, like, mascots are always divisive, which is a very strange thing because surely it's very easy just to go for something that's very uncontroversial no like it, it shouldn't it shouldn't be that difficult and actually when i then went to go look at like say the future ones the winter olympics never go too crazy they go for like you know a siberian tiger they they, they go for something that's just like no one is going to be able to hate this it's, it's just an animal 
I did wonder when I was looking up about Izzy uh, from from nineteen ninety six. Some some journalist called him like a sperm with sneakers, and I was looking at him and I was like, I don't know if he necessarily looks like a sperm, but. Then I watched the video of when he was first released in 1992 at the Barcelona Games. He was just a sperm <laughs> that then they put sneakers on. They spent the next four years trying to make him look, look less sperm-like, and they succeeded. They succeeded. But what they got was Izzy, um, who had three of his Olympic rings around his tail, uh, two Olympic rings around his eyes, and then he had lightning bolts for his eyes, his eyebrows, which is like, okay, I mean, we're all here for it. However, the one thing I will say, having been a child during the 90s, he does look very 90s. I've got a very 90s vibe of him. So... Yeah, I'm surprised you don't remember him because other people who would have been around your age for Atlanta have expressed a great deal of devotion towards Izzy and have derided my disdain for him. It. One thing I will say is like, I wonder is that to do with being in the American setting that like the mascots don't mean as much when you're removed from it. Um, like you, like, like even say with Rio, I feel an affinity because I was there and I saw the mascot bouncing about and I, and I was trying to buy the toys, but like, had I been watching at home, would I have, felt anything towards the mascots would i've remembered what they looked like probably not they they appear very briefly at any event and even in the opening ceremony they take a back seat that's a good point but you asked before about what the i guess what the impression of the americans are like at the olympics for for someone from the outside and i think a perfect example when you look at the crowd and also the shots to the friends and family of uh, a lot of the athletes and uh, the gymnastics and the Magnificent Seven really stand out to me there. And I think it's a shot of, I think it's before or after uh, Kerry Struggs' first vault when it cuts to her parents. And that is exactly the stereotypical look you would expect of two American tourists anywhere in Europe in the middle of the summer. That is just like... You're the quintessential American <laughs> couple, middle-aged, strolling around Bruges with uh, in the cobbles with their sandals and uh, you know struggling with the what what's happening underfoot. That's uh, that's them for me. Maybe it's a bit cruel, but that's <laughs> the impression I think that we got. So when I went to Rio, I was staying with my American friend who was working in the embassy in Rio. So it was the perfect, it was a perfect overlap. Got free accommodation in Rio, got wow. uh, free diplomatic <laughs> pushes towards things. It was absolutely perfect. But it was the first time I realized how Americans view the Olympics because it is a very different way. Myself and Chris are from a very small country, like when we get a bronze medal, it's like, oh my God, look at this. This person will get a ticker tape parade like when they get home because it doesn't happen that often for us. Now, Atlanta, we did very well. We won't, no. we won't dwell on that, but we did very because we will get sued. But we did very well in Atlanta. Do you know about <laughs> no. that story? Sorry. Does uh, that no. make any sense to you? Okay. 
Oh, so so like I do have memories of Atlanta very vaguely because we did really well in Atlanta. Relatively speaking. Well, no, 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 no. On the records. Yes. And again, Chris, I am the only one out of the four of us who live in Ireland, so I don't want to talk too much about this and get sued. But Ireland did very well. We won a number of gold medals in the pool. I see. From Michelle. So you don't know about Michelle oh. Smith. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yes, I do, but I had forgotten that that was her Olympics. Yeah, this is, for us, this, like as Ruth said, this is our, or this is my main memory from Atlanta, the incredible story of her. And it was like in the first four days of the Olympics, it all happened in the pool with her three gold medals and one bronze. And I mean, we can't state the facts without getting sued, Ruth. I mean, the thing is, Ruth's sister told her, her medals do stand. And she does try to sue people who say things that are not uh, necessarily true, which I think Ruth is a bit worried about. I'm not so worried about that, so I'm happy to talk about it if you are. Well, I'm not Irish, so I can say, yes, I remember the controversy being, was it the husband coach who may have been mixing her some cocktails? He has had a bit of a shaky record himself with other people. Uh, she later had a sample which was tampered but yeah there's no evidence that in the atlanta games she was on any performance enhancing but it was an incredible incredible story like she had it was but especially but especially for ireland being this tiny tiny nation this person who was doing so incredibly brilliant which was going to be her downfall which is like oh she's doing 10 seconds better (laughs) um like it was incredible and it was this moment of uplifting that like it's one of the two memories I do actually have of that Olympics was just that moment of being like this person is Irish because when you are six or seven and you're watching this it's like you don't have a huge amount of understanding about other countries competing against each other but you do still have that kind of moment of like this person has our flag and this person is winning and 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 also being surrounded by these people who are saying this is a fantastic moment that Ireland's actually getting gold medals, which myself and Chris talk about a lot in our early pods that we got a few, but we had a bit of a moment where we didn't get that many medals. I think for the most part, people don't uh, like, it's funny now when you look at back at the official videos, like the official film for Atlanta 96, she is mentioned in it because it is, I think behind one American swimmer, the best uh, swimming performance in Atlanta with three goals and one bronze. And, as Ruth mentioned, she had incredible time improvements in a very short time. She had like, I think, uh, an 18-second improvement in the 400-meter freestyle, which is incredible in such a short space of time. And she had done relatively well at the European Championships the year before. So to the Europeans, it wasn't such a big surprise, but really got the wrong side of the Americans because uh, in the first race, on the first day, she beat... Alison Wagner uh, into second place. And there was another American who was the world record holder who uh, didn't even get to the final. She finished ninth. So she just missed out on the final because of uh, Michelle Smith, basically. And she had told reporters that uh, about rumors going on poolside that there are accusations already. And this is at a very early stage. But she ended up uh, going on to win the three goals in three days and then a a bronze uh, on the final day. And then uh, a couple of years later, uh, she got a doping ban for four years after, I think it was whiskey 
whiskey Something. was included in the uh, urine sample that she gave. So it was in her home in Kilkenny in Ireland. It happened, Chris. <laughs> she disappeared for a couple of minutes uh, in between giving samples because she couldn't fill the uh, required amount in her first attempt, <laughs> so to speak, in the bathroom. And in the meantime, uh, the, the, the people actually taking the uh, samples noticed a, a smell of, uh, of alcohol and figured that it was whiskey. Um, and that turned out to be the case. And uh, she was banned eventually. The medals weren't taken away from her uh, for 96 because she didn't fail a drug test there. But the incredible, incredible thing about all this is that Eric de Bruin, the man she met in, I think it was 1992 in the Barcelona Olympics, they met in the cafeteria there. He, a year later, was found guilty of doping and he was banned himself. He turned into her coach despite being a discus thrower, not having nothing to do with swimming his entire life. He became her coach. He, according to them, just like introduced a more rigorous gym plan and uh, he figured out the whole swimming thing or she knew enough already. She became absolutely ripped. Uh, that was the explanation for it, uh, for her improved times because they completely changed the uh, approach. And I think that's pretty much all we can say without... Uh, being libelous. <laughs> but isn't that a thing from Atlanta in general, where we were kind of at this tipping point with a lot of those controversies, mm. where athletes knew it was happening, it was being publicly talked about, there was testing going on, but the the, the people using the, the banned substances, or they were using substances that weren't totally banned yet, was so far ahead of the testing. I think, like, I mean, doping is a whole other podcast. Okay, so beyond the pool, mm. what, and, okay, so Atlanta's known for also the Magnificent Seven, as we touched on, for gymnastics. I remember Atlanta's men's gymnastics because of the Chinese all-around Li Shuashuang, which one of the commentators on our television would not stop saying his name and it was just <laughs> Li Shuashuang, Li Shuashuang everywhere and we just non-stop you know what I'm talking about Allison right <laughs> so the com the commentary for gymnastics in Atlanta was just horrendous I think it was a really really not a great team to listen to then the other huge story was Michael Johnson on the track and Carl Lewis on the track any other stories especially non-American stories from these games. Well, so just to go back to like how we got onto the subject in the first place, as I was talking about, I was staying with my American friend. I got my first exposure to how Americans view the Olympics. Like for us, the Olympics, it, absolutely for those two weeks, it's blankish coverage. But we don't have that same, you know, like you were just saying about commentators and it wasn't a great team to listen to. We don't have that same, I suppose, like incredible affinity to the like to the entire process, which was something that I suddenly realized when I was with Americans and they were talking about their favorite commentators from the last 10 years. And I was going, well, like we would have for the boxing event, a former Irish boxer. We would have for the hockey event, some hockey international, but we wouldn't have this kind of core team USA like the the night the host for the night yeah we we don't have that and it was like this very strange thing to suddenly come across about people who had 
who I had known for years and had never heard once talk about sport, suddenly having an encyclopedic knowledge about Team USA, but only Team USA, not about anything outside of Team USA, but just purely Team USA and about the coverage of Team USA, which I found just like very strange. <laughs> uh, I, I have to intervene here because I think if anyone from Ireland actually listens to this and we don't mention Jimmy McGee, who is a, in Ireland, a incredibly famous broadcaster and has been there for probably about 200 years uh, he, he passed away sadly a few years ago. He, he is somebody I grew up with uh, when listening uh, to the Olympics and, and also every sport. So I think that that's someone who probably would be along those lines in America because there are, I think Bob Costas is another big one, right? Uh, at around this time as well. <laughs> so I, I'd be exposed to that a little bit as well. And I just want to mention uh, Michael Johnson because we, we touched on him there and he for me over the last few Olympics has been actually a big part because he's a broadcaster with the BBC nowadays. Oh, that's right. And the that's right. Coverage. And so even as, as uh, the two of us are Irish, I would have grown up listening or watching a lot of the BBC coverage of the Olympics and World Athletics Championships and so on because it's so good and it's so in-depth and we have full access to it as well. And so when I was looking back at this and I knew Michael Johnson uh, had... 96 and also 2000 were his, his two main Olympics. But what he did in 96 was incredible. The, the 200 and 400 double. Uh, we also had a, a French woman do the same, uh, Marie-José Perec. And for me also nowadays, when you look at the, the sprinters, it's so uh, incompatible, the idea of athletes being able to double up in 200 and 400, because nowadays it's all 100 and 200. Uh, the 400 is just such a brutal event that nobody would want to do anything else. And then you have the 800 and 1500 that people would double up in the in the short mid-distance athletics events. So for him to be able to uh, not just win, but absolutely destroy the field in both. And it, he set a world record in the 200, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, uh, in 96 as well, was absolutely nuts. And I think that's, it's brilliant. And he talks an awful lot, and I think all, broadcasters do in athletics talking about uh, relaxation in sprinters you know they always say they always look at their faces uh, like in the 200 or 400 as they come around the straight and talking about how important it is to be uh, relaxed and talking about form and everything like that there's no other sprinter who's just so efficient and compact in his running it's incredible he's like he just somehow such a big powerful man it like, tightens up into such a a straight line but at the same time is so relaxed in his face while he was running so he loves to talk about it in his broadcast but to actually see him do that and to watch him again recently preparing for this makes me realize that you can actually listen to michael johnson when he's uh, explaining what athletes should be doing on the track at the time because he was phenomenal we have some new sports in atlanta too yeah, and actually, so I was actually going to go on a bit of a segue to go back to Michelle Smith of Team USA, who won gold in softball. Um, so we had a few, we had a few Michelle Smiths, uh, but no, Michelle. Well, yeah, Team USA. It, it like softball came in for the first time. Baseball had been kind of like bumping around uh, intermittently throughout the Olympiads, but this is the first time to have softball in, and like. First appearance, it's actually stayed in. I didn't realize this, but it stayed in for three more. It was only 2008 that the last appearance was in, and it's due to make a return for 
won. As I said, Team USA won, which kind of is a bit of a Kel surprise. But um, it was actually, when I looked at it, it was a fairly closely contested event. Now, that being said, I am very familiar, say, with cricket score sheets, not so much with, with softball. So maybe it wasn't as close a contest as I'm thinking, but it was a round robin event. It was USA, Puerto Rico, Chinese ta- Taipei, Taiwan, Canada, Japan, China, Australia, and the Netherlands, which when I read the Netherlands, I didn't know the Netherlands had like a strong Dutch culture of softball, but clearly, clearly they did. They obviously won enough competitions to get there. They came second last, but whatever. But out of the t- like out of the round robins, and again, I'm coming at this as somebody who has never even watched a softball match. But yet, the, the second and fourth placers, China, Australia, and Japan, all won five out of their seven matches, and Team USA won six out of seven. So like it wasn't it wasn't hugely USA just out of like hitting it out of the field, hitting it out of the park. That's literally where that comes from. <laughs> Fair enough. One of my pet favorites is tug of war because anybody can do tug of war, you know, and, and you know, athletics, you know, athletics is a, is a level playing field to a bit of a, uh, but, but like it, it is because anybody can get involved. And I do kind of feel with, say with baseball, um, countries that don't have that culture are never going to be able to be involved uh, when we bring it down to a smaller level whether it's three on three with uh basketball whether it's uh, a five aside football anything like that we are bringing it to a level that children can recreate the day after they watch on the olympics they don't have to join a club they don't have to find the club they can go the next day find their neighbors or their friends go out onto the street and play and i think that's a much more that that's a legacy that every single olympics recently has been talking about has been talking about like what is our legacy no the legacy is those children who haven't had access to sports clubs that they can go out on the street and kick you know a misshapen ball around and it's funny you say that ruth because that's where we are in 2020. In 1996 was that right in the middle of let's spend as much as we possibly can on the Olympics. Let's make the flashiest venues. Let's spend millions of dollars on the bid. You know, we joke about the steak dinners and the watches for the IOC members, but 96 was about just let the cash flow in a very different way than would be comfortable to us now. I mean, just the opening ceremonies was all just, it was all just flash. There was so little substance and meaning to it. Do do you remember the pickup trucks? (laughs) You remember the pickup trucks? And I mean, it it had absolutely no context or, or cultural significance. It was like, let's show them what Friday night at the football games in Georgia is like. (laughs) Uh, the only the only thing I remember from uh, the opening ceremony was Muhammad Ali lighting the torch. I think that was beautiful. Uh, that that was something of substance. I know it seems a lot of down stories where we're, we're quite down in this podcast so far. Let's maybe focus on some nicer things. Uh, <laughs> I think Muhammad Ali was a lovely one. I, you mentioned the the sports that were coming in, and women's soccer was in for the very first time in '96. And, and do you two think that? America had a big part to play in that because uh, we associate women's soccer 
or women's football, as we call it over here, very much with the USA, uh, not just now, but also, at least for me personally, in the last 20 years. So do you think it was the fact that the sport was quite popular or was it so popular among women in America in the mid-90s? There was, the, I mean, soccer moms. That term existed or exists for a reason. There was a lot of youth soccer being developed in the 90s. And 80s. And, and 80s, yeah, yeah, as well. So that girls were playing it. So in 96, to see those women, I mean, the women who are now the U.S. team are the ones who watched that first gold medal in 96. Hmm. So it's certainly the legacy of the 96 women's soccer is tremendous. Hmm. Yeah, the attendance for them all was fantastic as well. I think uh, it was safely over a million people went to see uh, at least the men's side. I'm not sure if that was the entire uh, football event, but looking at the pictures from them, it was fantastic. And another one of my favorite stories from non-American teams or athletes comes from the football as well in Nigeria, uh, winning the, the men's soccer tournament, uh, the Super Eagles. And that was such a cool story. And I've actually heard from some Nigerian journalists in the past talk about it. And uh, the, the whole story was great. Like it's, uh, it was a very young team that had done well at the, the World Cup preceding that, the one in the USA. They had uh, gotten out of the group stage. And this was a time where, I mean, we're still not seeing African teams doing so well on the world stage, but they were the, the first kind of standout team to do so. And to, to go all the way in the Olympics was amazing. They had a, a young guy who was their captain, uh, Noaku Kanu, who was just turning 20, I think, for the semifinal. Uh, and they had this incredible game against Brazil where they were three goals to one down and then managed to come back and draw a level uh, with an incredible goal from Kanu in the final minutes and then uh, won an extra time. And for a country like that, and we're talking about the Olympics in general as this unifying thing, and it's something we brought up in, in our previous podcast, the one just after World War II, where uh, the idea of it is to, to unify people and bring people together in peace. And this is a country with 200 million people with like 500 different languages all coming together and, and supporting one team because that's the one thing they could all agree upon in Nigeria. And that was the football team. And even though it was hours like in the middle of the night for them watching in Atlanta, everyone did watch it. And uh, it really put African team sport in the spotlight for the first time. And to see a team like that go to the top and you know, soccer nowadays in the Olympics, it isn't, I think, taken that seriously by the big nations. But if you look at Brazil, who they beat in the semifinal, and Argentina, who they beat in the final, like the players in that were the top players at the time. So even though it was an under-23 tournament, and then you could have three overage players, it was still the very best players they had available to them. And, uh, and Nigeria won the tournaments. I think that was a really cool story and a nice international uh, aspect to these games. And then a couple of other sports that were new to the program, mountain biking and beach volleyball. Beach volleyball, really? Yeah, that was 1996. Oh, was that the first mean, time. that was Karch Karai? Um, I don't know. What? I know, Ruth was just like, what is what? a Karch Karai? She was a hottie from 1984, man. Yeah, so first he played indoor volleyball. When he was done with his indoor career, he moved to the professional beach circuit. That was definitely the first time I ever even knew beach volleyball was not just something a bunch of really tall people did on the weekend. Beach volleyball, I would say, is 90% hype, 10% actual sport. 
Um, and it works. Yeah, it works for them. That every time that you know somebody makes a block or somebody spikes, that three DJs uh, go wild and jump around the room and make lots of noise, and and everyone who's quite inebriated does the same in the arena. And that that's that's fine. It um, I think it was fitting that beach volleyball came into the commercial Coca Cola Olympics. That's my take on it. <laughs> I, I have some other non. Uh, into or some non-American stories if you want me to run through them quickly uh, because there were some that uh, really stood out to me. Now, I mentioned the, the British broadcasting before and the, the BBC having a big role in my Olympic schooling over the years and there was one guy who dominated that and that was Steve Redgrave. I don't know if you had, had heard about him. He's a rower who was competing for his fourth gold in the in 96 so the fourth consecutive one he's an incredible athlete as well so this was the only olympics i think in uh, very modern times or recent times where ireland finished ahead of the uk in the medal table because the uk only won one gold which is incredible to think about nowadays when you think of their their top you know usually in the top three or top four uh, in recent times seeing as they focus on sports where they can win quote-unquote, easy medals. But they only won one gold in, in 96, and that was in the in rowing, in the men's coxless uh, pair. And Steve Redgrave was 36 at the time. And as I mentioned, no British team had, uh, had won a gold at some point, so there was plenty of pressure. And at one point, he was at breaking point waiting for the, the race. And uh, he did win in the end with his partner, Matthew Pinsent. And he had this incredible quote right afterwards to the media where he said to them, if you ever see me anywhere near a boat, shoot me. <laughs> Three months later, he decided to come out of retirement. <laughs> and in Sydney, then four years later, he won his fifth. So he won five consecutive uh, gold medals in the boat. And he, yeah, 36 years of age at the time, which is uh, pretty incredible. And there were two incredible women in three-day eventing. Now, it's not one of the sexiest sports. I don't think it would have been primetime on NBC at the time, but three-day equestrian eventing. And the Australian team that won gold. And there was two women on the team and two men, because this is a, a mixed sport because the horses do most of the work, I think it's fair to say. And the uh, the riders are, play a big ro role, of course, but... Um, the gender doesn't matter, it appears. And so two men and two women on the team. And one of the women, Julian Rolton, on the second day uh, in the cross country, her horse fell and she got up back on the horse, uh, but she was unaware that she had broken her collarbone and ribs, but then realized she couldn't use her left arm anymore. At the next jump, she fell in the water, but got back up again. She now had trouble breathing because her lung was punctured. Nevertheless, she held on to the horse, Peppermint Grove, that's the name of the horse, for another 15 jumps over three kilometers, finished, and then she was taken to the hospital. And she was quoted as saying, you don't go to the games to be a wuss. You don't go to the games to be a wimp. You go to the games because you've got to get through those those finish flags no matter what. And that's what she did on day two of the three-day eventing. 
thankfully for her and for her teammates, only three of the four riders have to compete in the final day, which is the show jumping part. So she got to sit the final day out. But it meant the other woman on the team, Wendy Schaefer, she did compete. Two months before the Olympics, she had broken her leg. Wow. And it was basically held together with padded pads and screws. Yes, she managed to compete and Australia won the gold. Now, is that not just the most phenomenal gold medal achievement? Well, eventers are, when we spoke to um, the, the man who ships the horses, he was talking about eventers just being probably some of the toughest athletes on any Olympic team because those events are, the cross country is so dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the break an arm, puncture a lung. What- <laughs> Moving on. I, I'm on the horse, but I'm sitting down. I don't need that leg. How do you get up on the horse again? <laughs> Twice. Well, you know, the phrase, when you fall off the horse, you got to get back. There's a reason mm. those phrases exist. Wasn't this the first time that every single nation that was invited or every single nation that was considered a nation took part? There was like all 197 uh, took part, which means we also had some and a first-time medalist overall. And first-time participants. First-time participants. Your countries that showed up for the first time, yeah. Uh, I have some, let me see my, uh, so we had Syria win their first and only gold medal. Uh, I think that had a bit of an American interest as well. Gada Shua in the heptathlon. And she was like a former basketball player and an incredible thrower as well. And uh, she won the heptathlon. I think Jackie Joyner-Kersey was the big American hope in that one, but she was injured. She dropped out after the first event, uh, right? But then, then she came back and, and got a bronze, was it, in the long jump? After that, like six days afterwards? Probably. Yeah, I think that was uh, a disappointment for, for the Americans. Bringing in, I have to bring in my own sport here as well at one point, and handball, because we had one first-time gold medalist there as well, and that was a relatively new country, Croatia, who had uh, only a few years previous uh, broken away from Yugoslavia. They had competed, I think, in 1992, but uh, as a as an Olympic nation, but won their first gold in 96. Uh, in the men's handball, they beat Sweden, uh, which is where I'm residing now. And there's a, a team that's incredibly famous in, in Sweden. That was that men's handball team. They were called the Bengen Boys. They won everything. They were like the, they were handball's version of the dream team at the time. They had a slightly less uh, fantastic name, the Bengen Boys. But they won everything at the time, uh, world championships, European championships, could never win an Olympic gold medal. And Croatia managed to win it, win that. And in front of like, I think it was about 40,000 people as well, which is quite impressive for an indoor arena. So we haven't really mentioned the arenas and the, the stadiums in, uh, in Atlanta, which I think were slightly controversial as well. But they were bloody massive, that's for sure. They were. I've been in the convention center that a lot of the events were in, I would imagine, I think maybe gymnastics and fencing and a whole score of all of those. We put a mat in a, in a room and, and do the event. And it's enormous that the place is so big. Something you mentioned, Chris, also 96 would have probably been the first time a lot of the former Soviet republics Mm. and a lot of those kind of new formed countries would have competed because 92, they had the unified team because you know, the Soviet Union had fallen apart, but the new countries hadn't formed. So 96, you've got all these new countries who have 
the long tradition of sport having been part of the Soviet Union, but now have their own systems to develop. So it would have been all these countries getting new three-letter codes that none of us could recognize. Yeah. Any other big moments that we should look for for uh, next year? Ooh, well, the the Turkey versus Greece weightlifting slash politics battle was uh, was something. I'm I'm really surprised Ruth hasn't got an essay prepared on this. I got distracted by a video about this very event. I have no facts about it except. I stopped watching it because it was an American commentator and he was talking about how partisan it was. And he was talking about how incredibly divided because obviously Greece and Turkey and very recently there had been the invasion of what Greece believes is Greek land, what Turkey believes is Turkish land. Um, But actually when you talk to the two athletes, they had such an immense respect for each other. And what Chris is alluding to is that I absolutely adore door weightlifting and um, I think it's one of the most spectacular in-person uh, spectator events because when you go into a stadium watching weightlifting I like I, I found it really strange that they were talking about this partisanness of, and and you know they showed vast um areas of the crowd which were holding Turkish flags and that was holding Greek flags but actually when you're at a weightlifting event because it's so raw, it's one person at any given time. And the thing they're competing against is the weight. And there's those 60 seconds, because they, they, they generally have, I think it's two minutes on the clock, but that takes from where they're standing all the way onto the stage to lift it up. But in those few seconds, the entire stadium is with that one athlete. Like, it's the one event that I don't believe can possibly be partisan. Like it, it is just such a pure, everybody is here for this one athlete to lift this up. Anyway, Atlanta, Chris, you want to give us the facts about that? Oh yeah. What actually happened in that? <laughs> yeah. So I was just saying, I didn't believe the commentator saying that it was partisan. Can't believe it was that. Quite partisan. But also the athletes, but, but no, but the athletes themselves interviewed at the event said that like they had that they didn't see nations when they were competing against each other. They didn't see politics when they were competing against each other. They just saw the other person was at the top of their game and competing against them was an honor, not necessarily a fight, which I think it was portrayed as yeah. by people outside it was more the fans of course and that's the case i think with most sports as well in the end of the day that it's the fans who are the ones that uh, are really giving the vitriol in the in the arena at the time and so the the turkey versus greece weightlifting thing and the, the guy who won it and i am suleiman oglu the pocket hercules was his name and he won three consecutive goals including that one in 96 but my favorite bit about all this is that he was so small. Yeah. He's 151 yeah. centimeters. That's uh, four foot 11 for an Olympic weightlifter. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but, but, also, but no, but so again. It's, it's, it's relative to what he's lifting. He seems so small. When yeah. they're lifting so much, when they have that incredibly heavy weight, then they look so small. I, I, I just love that so much. And the, the guy he beat was Valerius Leonidas from Greece. And the incredible thing was that in the last like four or five minutes of the competition, 
they just kept smashing world records in for like individual lifts and combined lifts. So they just, both of them really pushed it to a whole nother level uh, because if it was a draw in the end, the lighter man would have won, which is the, the yeah. Greek Leonidas. So uh, Suleiman Oglu needed to go once again higher. He managed to do that and uh, that was really cool. Uh, a side note about him, he was born in Bulgaria and had originally represented Bulgaria for a long time until the Bulgarian government decided that the Turkish minorities living in Bulgaria basically meant nothing to them anymore and uh, they weren't worth anything to them. So he decided he was going to become a, a Turkish citizen. There was a bit of back and forth about that, because about his eligibility. And in the end, Turkey paid like a transfer fee of like a million dollars to get him, which is... Uh, you know, it's very common in, in sport and in team sports, but there was your first Olympic weightlifting transfer fee from uh, Bulgaria yeah. to Turkey. What was their weight category? It was 64, wasn't it? That was the, uh, I think it was up to 64 yeah. kilogram yeah. weight. Yeah. What's going to be fun for me going back to 96 is because obviously in 96, there was no YouTube. There was no streaming. Mm. So we saw what NBC wanted us to see. And, you know, you're talking about a weightlifting match between a Greek and a Turk. We did not see that. Or if we did, it was like a five second recap of look at this very politically charged, look at all the flags, and then that would be it. So that'll be fun for us to go back and watch the things that we didn't get to see in the stories we don't know. Yeah. Well, we are really excited to get to dive into Atlanta, and you've given us a lot of food for thought on stories to look for for uh, the games for next year so thank you so much ruth and chris check them out at olympopod highly recommend not just for the theme song thank you so much ruth and chris be sure to check out olympopod at olympopod.captivate.fm they're on twitter and insta at olympopod we'll have links to all of that in the show notes if you don't listen to Olympopod, you should because it's a lot of fun. It's one of the few shows I listen to on normal speed because I do like to listen to a lot of podcasts. So I have to often listen to them at faster than usual speed. But this is one that I like to have at normal speed so I can fully absorb every, everything they're saying. Chris and Ruth go through the Olympics history one by one. So they start at 1896 and they're going to the present day, and we were on the Los Angeles 1932 show. If you haven't listened to that, you should check that out. That was so much fun. So, yeah, it's they do a great job. They're a lot of fun, and we were so happy to have them on to talk 96 before they got to it on their own list. I know. We sort of rushed them to do a little work on 96. I think they're up to about 36 yes. right now, so that's going to be a good show. That will be, and if you read Boys in the Boat with us, and uh, Games of Deception, that gives you some insight as to what's going to happen. And I'm curious to see what else they come up with fact-wise from these games. It'll be fun. We have another big announcement. We are going to be removing our PyeongChang daily wrap-ups and bonus episodes from our podcast feeds. And we're going to put them on our Patreon site. We'll, and they will be available to our bronze-level patrons and above. So if you'd like to get access to those, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. And that change will be happening at the beginning of 2021. 
Also, in early 2021, we're going to be having book club again. So if you haven't gotten your book, which is World Class uh, by Peggy Shin, it's about the U.S. Women's Cross-Country Skiing Program. Be sure to get that. And you can also help the show by shopping through bookshop.org. We have a affiliate link there. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash flame alive pod. And as I've said before, books make a lovely holiday gift. That they do. And we have some suggestions there. So it's not just our book club books. It's other things we've liked to read. Why don't we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive? Welcome to Shukflastan. All right. Checking in with past guests from the show. It's snowing in Shukflastan. It is. It is. It's pretty nice. You take your winter headdress out. I know, because it's got to have the, well, it would be more babushka-esque. Our uh, Israeli slider, A.J. Edelman, said on LinkedIn that Toyota has adopted him as part of the Start Your Impossible campaign. So congratulations to him. That should be a nice little feather in the cap. Biathlete Claire Egan was on a recent episode of Heartbeat Podcast, which is a U.S. biathlon product. And in the first week of competition at Hulk Filtson, she placed 10th in the sprint, 13th in the pursuit, and 12th with the U.S. relay team. And so she's moved up to 28th in the overall World Cup rankings. Phil Andrews was on a recent episode of the SBJ on PAX podcast. Oh, I'm sure he's got a lot to say right now about what's happening. Oh, gosh, yeah. That's in my queue. That's prime holiday listening for me. Josh Williamson is officially a member of the U.S. men's national bobsled team. And they will start racing in the second half of the bobsled season, which starts on January 3rd. Yay! So excited for him. I can't wait to see his new headshot. Every year he he looks a little bit older and looks a little less babyish. So it's, oh, the new headshot's coming out. Our mogul skier Bradley Wilson competed at Idrafiel and tied for third on one day of competition and got a fifth in another day of competition. So congratulations to him. Water polo player Tony Azevedo was on the Pan Am Sports Channel on a program called Expert Connection, Tips from the Best, Olympic Legends on What It Takes. And that is streaming on the channel's website, so we will have a link to that in the show notes. Author Andrew Marinus was on episode 262 of Hall of Very Good podcast, talking about his book Singled Out. And artistic swimmer Jacqueline Simino is a spokesperson for Salalique Quebec a nonprofit for making life easier for people with celiac disease and those around them. Yeah, I did not realize she had celiacs. I did not either, but it's nice that she can be a spokesperson. Right, and obviously be very healthy and very successful, and it's not hindering her in any way. Exactly. Let's move on to some Tokyo 2020 news. Kyoto News is reporting that celebrities might not be allowed on the torch relay this spring when it starts because they're worried that the celebrities may draw too many crowds. Makes sense. COVID super spreader events. So we'll see what happens with that, but that's consideration out there. The Kyoto News also reported that the Japanese government is going to cover the virus costs for the host towns. We talked about this the other week. Yes. Athletes and teams have been adopted by, and countries have been adopted by host towns all over the country, but they're going to have to have some COVID protocols in place, and the government is going to cover those. I can tell you, I don't think the United States has been adopted by anybody. <laughs> they don't sure want they our I'm germs. Sure they have. I'm sure. But, but they got adopted before COVID happened. 
They've returned us. <laughs> they brought us back to the shelter. The International Paralympic Committee's governing board had their big four-day meeting, which is kind of like an IOC session. And they announced that they will also be having new period of stay guidelines in the village for their athletes. Same entry as the Olympics, so they can athletes can come five to seven days prior to the start of, of competition, and they've got to leave maximum two days after. And there will be some exceptions that they'll consider subject to certain sport criteria, but the, uh, the, the IPC also noted that athletes will get a playbook to guide them through their personal responsibilities and individual journeys at the games. I want to see this playbook. I, I know. You know, I, I wonder if it's going to be an app only because there's so many things that have moved from paper publications to online versions. So I, this obviously is something that could be in an app. But I also, if there is a paper version of this, oh, man, would I want a copy of it for history? Okay, we'll, we'll call Ness Murby right? and see if he gets a physical copy or at least can screenshot some things for right, us. Right, well, many, man, maybe there's a playbook coming for the Olympic athletes as well. They could use it. And so exciting for me. There's a Mara novella for... This is, this is like the Christmas special of the Mara novella. We haven't seen it in a while. There hasn't <laughs> been a new episode. And now we're having a holiday special. Oh, yes. So the Mainichi uh, newspaper is reporting that the marathon course has been approved by World Athletics and a test event has been scheduled for May. So it's still happening in Sapporo and that's all been confirmed. So how could they have a test event in May? That's too soon. Well, it's I mean, to... like, it's not going to be the top marathoners no, competing. No. Yeah. The test event is going to be a corporate half marathon and a 10K race open to about 2,500 members of the public. So it's I think they're just testing to see if the, how the course works and flows and not necessarily get the feedback from elite athletes. Right, because you couldn't run a marathon in May and have the Olympics in July. Right. Oh, it's always nice to hear news about the marathon. It's still happening. <laughs> and we've got some news from Milan Cortina. The International Paralympic Committee has provisionally approved the medal event program for Milan Cortina, and they're having 18 medal events. New to the program is women's banked slalom and snowboard cross for upper limbs, and then mixed doubles wheelchair curling. A nice mixed gender event for you on the program. No, I love those mixed gender events. Exactly. Also, para bobsleigh is provisionally included, and they will make a final decision on that in early 2021, which was interesting because it was provisional for Beijing, but they dropped it from the program altogether in 2018. So we will keep an eye out on this to see if bobsleigh actually gets added to the Paralympic program. And we've got so, a little bit of IOC news for you. So we've got some Rule 50 news. I love a good Rule 50 update. The U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee has released a set of recommendations where they will allow for peaceful protests on podiums and will not implement any sanctions. This is what uh, they came up with from the, the Council on Racial and Social Justice. And they have said, we will allow for podium protests. Okay. 
So what did the IOC think of this? So the Athletes Commission Chair, Kirsty Coventry, responded saying, this statement will be taken into consideration among the other feedback that it has received and continues to receive from the athletes of the other 205 National Olympic Committees. I thought her statement actually was very good because she really distilled the issue of we respect freedom of speech and we want to preserve the field of play and the sanctity of the podium. Yeah, uh, she had put put this on Twitter. That's where I found it. But uh, it was a longer statement where exactly that's the issue that they're getting. They're getting a lot of feedback that athletes should have some freedom of speech, but they're also getting feedback that we want the medal ceremony and the podium to be for the results of the event, not as a platform for spreading some social justice or social injustice measure because as, as you've mentioned time and time again look this can be for good but it can also go very very badly very quickly right i don't envy the ioc in trying to strike a balance in this but on the other hand if everybody is unhappy then you've probably done it right <laughs> right because then everybody's had to to compromise in some way mm-hmm Exactly. I want to say, I guess the good thing about this is that athletes, at least in the U.S., wouldn't have to face more sanctions. Right. And it feels like the IOC is really taking the athlete's voice into consideration. I do feel like their process has been respectful of the athletes and hearing the voices from all around the world, which is what you want. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We don't want to have one nation overpower everybody else with what they believe. And I get it. We're, we're both American. We know that Americans can just kind of steamroll over everybody. And we also have a firm belief in freedom of speech. But we also need to take into consideration that other places don't have those same opinions. And we need to respect that. And I'm also glad that the USOPC came out with the statement saying they're not going to sanction the athletes because that is such an American value. Yes. The freedom to protest, the freedom of speech is is so core to who we are as a country that I'm glad the USOPC said this, even though the IOC may end up disagreeing. It's like I'm happy with everybody right now, which is the exact <laughs> opposite of what I just said. But for this moment, I feel like people are being true to their values. Yes, that's a good way to put it. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, if the IOC does say no podium protests, I would be interested to see what Team USA does to help its athletes promote the social justice issues that they want to promote with respecting the Rule 50 guidelines that come out. You know what I'm saying? I do. And I wonder what the IOC is going to do in terms of their sanctions to athletes. Yeah, good point. You know, do they make it just we don't allow this, but there's not a lot of teeth in it because they don't feel strongly that they want to punish athletes for it. Mm -hmm. So the optics of this will be very interesting. I think the optics of this is actually much more important than the text. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know. No matter what, it would be interesting to, to see what is being made available to allow for some activism to happen on the part of athletes without necessarily having that take away from the achievement of the athleticism. People, you need to get your vaccines because Tokyo 2020 
in 2021 has to happen because there's so many things that I'm excited about. You know, I'm excited about the competition, but I'm also excited about these larger issues that the Olympics represents. So please, people, get your vaccines, wear your masks. That's a good note to end it on. Excellent. All right, that will wrap it up for this episode. Hey, so let us know your memories from Atlanta 1996. We're going to do, we're going to try to make this a fun year and keep Atlanta as a thread throughout the year, not just these episodes. So we'd love to hear your memories, your favorite moments. If you went, what stories you have, let us know. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta, and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we will have some lightning round episodes to celebrate the Christmas holidays. And it's a theme. Not going to tell you the theme, but it's centered around one theme. So as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Sometimes you think that life is just a journey An endless search for meaning you'll never find a little punchy at the end of the year. <laughs>